I'm just being real. I'm telling my story. I think Nikki Giovanni calls it dancing naked on the floor. I am unafraid. I'm doing my dance. And if you like it, great. If you don't, go home. So, yeah, I'm just being me. And I guess I, I don't feel like I can go wrong if I'm just being me. Kwame Alexander's stories and characters ring with remarkable authenticity. Kids and parents around the country and really around the world are his mega fans. And that includes yours truly. Kwame has become a beacon for genuine representation, particularly for young black boys. And he does it by simply being honest. Kwame is renowned for his books, The Crossover, The Undefeated, The Door of No Return, and numerous other novels, picture books, and poetry collections. He recently authored his memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. His exceptional work has earned him prestigious awards, including the Newbery Medal and Coretta Scott King Book Award. And this year, the crossover was adapted into a Disney Plus original TV series. In this episode, Kwame discusses growing up in a family steeped in Black storytelling and literature, tells us how he came very close to ending up as a biochemist, and reveals the secret to making middle schoolers think he's cool. He'll also tell us about the letter that was specifically not fan mail, which inspired a surprise visit to an unsuspecting student. Oh, and hot tip, stick around until the very end for a hilarious bonus track. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod, and you can also subscribe to our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. All right, on to the show. As a glasses wearer, you have an amazing stable of glasses. So before we get into your life and times of Kwame Alexander, let's talk about your glasses versus your shoes. <laughs> Do you feel that your glasses game or your shoe game is stronger? First of all, thank you for having me on your brilliant <laughs> podcast. And I wish your awesome listeners could hear you or could see you because you got the fly glasses on right now. Oh, whatever. I got a few. A few I had to decide. You know, I had to see. I had a few what? other pairs. Like, which ones am I going to wear for Kwame? You know? But it's, this is a podcast. Like, who? I know, but we're on video. It's true. <laughs> I mean, and plus, in order to sound good, you got to look good. So I get it. It's It was an eyeglass thing for me before it became a shoe thing. Like, I'm still figuring out my shoe game. But once I realized that I couldn't see, <laughs> I said, well, and at the same time, my sort of hair was, I had these long locks and my hair was falling out, as it were. It's like, okay, so maybe... I'm going to go bald. So if I'm going to wear glasses, they need to be, they need to make a statement because that's like the only thing on my head that's going to matter. But so, so yeah, it's definitely eyewear. The shoe thing is much more difficult because I wear a size 16. So where can I find the fly shoes? And I'm getting older. So where can I find the fly shoes that feel comfortable? Those orthopedic fly shoes. <laughs> yeah, okay. That doesn't go together. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> okay, Kwame, we're going to, we're going to start the interview for real now. Um, so prepare. All right. You've you've spoken a lot about your mom and her influence on you. And I want to hear about that. And 
I first want to acknowledge that today as we are recording is September 1st, and that is actually the anniversary of her passing, I read. So first, I just want to know how you're celebrating her life today. Well, I appreciate that. I'm on Folly Beach in Charleston, South Carolina, a place she really loved. We spent time here as a family just vacationing and stuff. And she loved to sit outside in the morning and listen to the ocean. So I had planned this trip for my siblings, their families, my dad, but didn't really think about the fact that it was my the anniversary of my mom's passing. I literally didn't think that, Jordan. I was like, I'm just going to get a beach house. It's the end of the summer. It's Labor Day weekend. Let's just all get together. And then a couple of weeks ago, someone, I think I was being interviewed, and someone casually mentioned, well, you're anniversary of your mom's passing is coming up. They asked sort of a similar question that you just asked, and it hit me, oh, snap, I'm going to be on Folly Beach with my family. So in a way, it was sort of like her having her hand in, in my life again, just sort of, you know, whether you believe in the universe, the creator, whomever you believe in, the ancestors, you know, have an impact on us. I think she probably has something to do with me being here, but I'm here to celebrate her. I'm probably going to do a walk on the beach and just reflect, try to, you know, have think about all the precious memories. And But yeah, yeah, just to be with my dad and my sisters and sort of just connect and engage with them. I'm sure that'll be comforting. Yeah, that sounds very nice. Can you talk a bit about the influence that your mom had on you as a reader? I think it's fitting that I'm here on the anniversary of the passing of her, of my mother, and I'm on this podcast called The Reading Culture. That's fitting because, like, she was one half of the duo that instituted this reading culture in our home, in our lives. Like, books were so much a part of our our existence and and story, the power of story. Like, so my mom was a storyteller, like an official storyteller. Like she went to the national storyteller conventions. Amazing. And so she used to tell us, like we were her practice audience, you know, um, the beautiful girl with no teeth or Moja means one. I mean, she was constantly telling us these stories that I still know verbatim to this day. And so that was always exciting to be able to hear and see someone perform theatrically in your bedroom at bedtime. Like bedtime stories really came alive. The read aloud, reader's theater, folk tales, they were a part of our lives on a daily basis. Bedtime, breakfast table, in the car, So it was always very informal. And then sometimes it was formal. She would do storytelling at church, you know, in Sunday school. And so it just became a part of our lives. And we all became adept at being able to to share our words, to find our voice and to lift them up. Yeah, it was just a part of us, man. And my mom and dad, you know, they played their roles in that, in making that happen. Yeah, it sounds like your dad played, well, you had so many books in your house. I love that story about the garage. Just, I think the visual for me of you having all these books and just having so many books, like they're everywhere. I read this article once about like the negative of decluttering, I guess. Like everybody was obsessed with Maria Kondo and 
declutter your house and make everything neat and what have you. But the flip of that is that you probably would never get the experience you had in that garage, right? Where there's just stuff to explore. Yeah, I mean, when I was in the garage, I could come across an old report card from my dad's, a newspaper clipping from the Air Force when he played basketball, you know, a book of poems, a novel, just so much stuff, like information. And I just found myself being really curious and inquisitive and reading everything. A lot of cosmetology books, because he was a barber in the Air Force. So how to cut hair, just random stuff. And so I just soaked it all in and soaked it all up. And it definitely contributed to me, you know, having a certain level of familiarity with with books and a certain comfortability around books and literature. Because I, w- I had been exposed to every genre from very easy reading poetry to War and Peace. Like everything was there. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Love After Love can be found in Derek Walcott's collection, Collected Poems, 1948 to 1984. Walcott, a Nobel Prize winning Caribbean poet, playwright, and essayist, was known for his bold explorations of life and cultural heritage through philosophical and metaphorically laced writing. A young Kwame was on his way to a very non-literary career when he encountered Walcott's work, and that discovery hit like a lightning bolt, forever altering the course of his life. My dad was a book publisher, and I worked for him most of my child and young adult life. And from time to time, he would take me to conferences and or trade shows, and I'd be in charge of selling the books, working the table. And so there was a big conference happening in London. I think it was 1987. It was called the Third World Radical Book Publishers, Black Book Publishers Convention or something. It was publishers of black literature from around the world, basically. And so I didn't really want to go to work, but I wanted to go to London. Then we got to the book fair and my dad was doing workshops and teaching and mingling and doing deals. And I was working the table and meeting different people and selling these books by Alice Walker and Sheikh Anta Diop and Chancellor Williams and France Fanon and Pearl Klieg, and just, ah, oh, and meeting so many cool people. And I remember somebody gave, said, I met this woman, because there's always a woman in the story. I met <laughs> this woman, and she is, we kind of flirted. And I was maybe a sophomore in college. Maybe she was a grad student. I was way in over my head. And she invited me to a play that night. And so we went to see this play called Beef No Chicken. And it was a play by Derek Walcott, the St. Lucian poet. And I remember just being blown away by it. And 
remember going back and asking my dad, well, why don't we sell Derek Walcott's books? And then I end up going to a bookstore or to another publisher's table and finding one of his poetry books. And I remember reading this poem called Love After Love. And I was just like, whoa, that was, yeah. that was incredible. And the, the next night I went to this Caribbean restaurant and the Nigerian novelist Ben Okree was there and I had just seen his book, The Famished Road. And I was just in this whole writerly world, you know, as a sophomore in college. And I was just, I was floored by it and inspired by it and like so excited to be in it. And I think, you know, that trip to London began sort of my journey away from biochemistry. Yeah, you were a biochemistry major? Yeah, and headed towards writing. wild. Yeah, it's interesting because you really grew up with books, but so they've been reading something about that, what, just like being in that milieu or whatever just really like sealed it for you? I mean, you were taking these classes. Oh, yeah, because I was taking chemistry and biochem and physics and but something about that London trip and reading these these poets and seeing that play and meeting other artists and and just being in that mix, it just, it affected me. And I wanted, like I've been in a way, you know, for the past 30 years, I've been trying to recreate that moment. What in various sort of, these, these varied experiences that I've had, it's all about creating the energy and the inspiration of that moment where you felt like your responsibility was to find your voice, lift your voice up, do something meaningful with your voice, and enjoy that experience to the fullest. Quick detour. Back when this podcast was still just an idea on a napkin, I had a lot of discussions with my kids about the authors that inspired them the most, Cassius immediately thought of Kwame, but he said, well, you won't be able to get him. But like I told him, never underestimate the power of a mother. As the mother of a middle school boy, I think Kwame's work is so important. This is a crucial age for developing emotional skills, and it's a bit of a magic window when there's a real opportunity to show boys how essential it is to be a complex human including showing tenderness or sadness or any of the soft feelings, boys are oftentimes trained to stifle or to hide. Meanwhile, their demographic is commonly put in the category of reluctant readers. But one thing I hear repeatedly from teachers is that Kwame's books are different. They get boys excited to read and even to read about, yes, you guessed it, feelings. I wanted to know how Kwame thinks about writing for this audience and why his approach works so well. I feel like his middle school is such an important time for us to nurture and develop the kind of boys we want to grow into beautiful men. And I think in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, we have an opportunity to sort of change the narrative and how boys interact and engage and how we think about them. Like, I feel like part of my responsibility in, in with my books is to create characters that represent and reflect the kind of boy I was and the kind of boys that, that I, some of the boys that I engaged with and, you know, and that it's okay and it's cool to be sensitive, 
to be thoughtful, to be loving. Those are cool things. It's okay to write a poem, you know? Yeah. It's okay to do some of these things that we, you know, generally haven't shown boys that it's okay to do or be. I was in Kenya recently, and I remember talking to some of the Kenyan men, and I was like, is it okay? Like, do y'all cry here as men? And one of the men was like, oh, no, no, we don't cry. We have never cried. We have never cried. We were, be- we were beaten. And they talked, they talked how they were beaten as boys, that they cried because it just showed weakness. And so I think part of my job is to just to show a different side of masculinity as I grow into becoming a better father, son, lover. I feel like part of my job is, is to help show another side. So I just create characters that are authentic to me that I care about, that are me, that based on me and my friends, and and hopefully boys will connect with it, and they'll and they'll do what this kid named Woody in Bryan, Texas, did after I read to him and his classmates. He was like, "Can I have a hug?" I've had that engagement with a lot of boys around the country. You know that sort of thing happened. They're floored at the impact of the words, like. We had no idea words could do that, could make us feel that, could make us feel something, could make this whole auditorium feel something. And like, and then you get it, boys are asking, hey, can I, can I get that poem written down so I can use it later? <laughs> you know, I'm like, you can buy the book. <laughs> and you can have it all the time. <laughs> I'm at Center City Public Charter School in Washington, D.C. The students are watching the crossover TV series and they're watching the episode that I was in and then I'm gonna walk in the classroom. They don't know I'm here. This is so exciting. (laughs) What's up? Kwame's devoted fan base, of course, includes girls and boys and plenty of adults anyone who connects with genuine characters and compelling stories. And that devotion is happily reciprocated. Kwame's commitment to supporting his readers goes beyond the pages of his books. When I was growing up, my parents used to take me to a lot of poetry readings and book fairs, and there'd be artists and writers coming over to the house. And like I was just in this environment where the words came off the page. Like the words were alive. The books were alive. And it just became matter of fact to me. This is just this is just a part of life. This is a part of the artist's way. And it's just so I couldn't articulate it how inspirational it was then, but I realize now how how inspirational it was. You know, I've sort of operated in that tradition. Sometimes it does take a whole lot, but most of the time it doesn't take a whole lot for me to just show up for a kid. So I was living in London during COVID. And I remember somehow I got a fan letter to my London address from a fifth grader in Santa Monica. I was like, how in the heck did this fifth grader get my address? (laughs) And she wrote me this really long, praising letter about my work and how much she loves it. And she thanked me for it. And her friends had read the crossover and rebounding book. And then she, in her last paragraph, she said, but 
how come you never have any girls as main characters? And we feel you have a responsibility. And she just went on. I was like, dang, who is this kid? And then she said, uh, sorry if this sounds too pushy. (laughs) Sincerely. And then she wrote her name. And then she said, note to publisher. If the publisher gets this letter rather than Mr. Kwame Alexander, please send it to him directly and do not sort it as fan mail. This is not fan mail. This is a request letter, something much more than fan mail. Thank you very much. Amazing. So I had a meeting at Disney. We were working on the crossover, so I had to fly to L.A. So I was like, well, I'll just take an hour and I'll drive over to Santa Monica and I'll surprise her. I'll show up in her classroom. Like it took two hours of my day. And so that wasn't a great deal of time while I was in L.A., But it was in the tradition of me trying to create these environments where young people are inspired, where I, like I was inspired. Those times changed my, my worldview, you know, impacted my life, got me on this journey. And so there's a way that I can do that for kids. I'm all for it. Plus it inspires me, Jordan. Like it gets me kind of amped up too. Yeah. What happened when you showed up there? So I, I had gotten her aunt's info online, had done some due diligence So her aunt and I planned the surprise. So when I showed up in her class, she was pretty floored. I filmed it, but she was pretty floored. Like, couldn't believe it. Her classmates were like, what What just happened? (laughs) And then she proceeded to say, so did you read my letter? What do you think? Yeah, what's your feedback? Like, did you accept my feedback? Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so it was, and we spent, I spent like 45 minutes with them, gave away some books, answered some questions. That kind of stuff is real meaningful to me, you know, to let kids know they matter. Yeah. Is that what sparked the Kwame showed up, like, movement of a man <laughs> that you started? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, well, the first one was in 2000, maybe 17, and I had shown up at a kid's school in Chapel Hill. His teacher had given me a note the night before at a library, a library event at a book signing, and I read the note, and it was from him. You know, he, he had never read a book before and he couldn't put it down. So I showed up at his school and his reaction was incredible. He just started running up and down the hall screaming like he couldn't believe it. And he went and got all his friends out of class and told them to come out. It's not like mind blowing that <laughs> just like the idea that you that the kids are like running around excited to meet an author to have that. It's just like that's very beautiful. Yeah, it's, it it's incredible. No, it know? is. It's, it's a great feeling. And it means the world because it's one thing to write a book. It's another thing to know that it's having the kind of impact that you could never have imagined on, on a kid. And that's what you want. It is. It is. And I mean, as a former teacher, I think that getting kids to geek out about reading and writing and poetry is very hard. So what would you say is in your, your secret sauce? Well, I think I'm cool. And not in some of this sort of fake old guy cool. Like, I just feel like I'm in touch with the kid in me. And I'm authentic and real in that respect. Like, I'm not trying to write for a certain age. I'm just trying to write for the kid in Kwame. What I would have loved to have read when I was that age, you know? And simultaneously, what I love to read now. So I think just I'm just being real. I'm telling my story. I think Nikki Giovanni calls it dancing naked on the floor. 
I am unafraid. I'm doing my dance. And if you like it, great. If you don't, go home. So, yeah, I'm just being me. And I guess I, I don't feel like I can go wrong if I'm just being me. So good. So good. You are definitely just being you. And for you, Kwame, you have these like, you have had this extremely extensive career and you could rest on your laurels right now, keep doing your dance, but I suspect that that is not your plan. So what are some of your next big goals? What's coming up for you? There's quite a few things that from a business standpoint, I'd still love to do, but most importantly, I just want to work on being a better human being. I know that sounds cliche, but I just want to sort of figure out that in the way that I figured out my business life, I want to have a little bit more understanding and control and vision when it comes to my personal life, which I think is why the memoir served as a great door opener for that, the beginning of that journey. But I got more stories to tell, you know, and I got different ways I want to tell those stories, whether they be on stage or on the big screen or, or in a book. So I definitely want to explore that. One of my biggest dreams, and this is something I, I think will be sort of the, the thing that a big part of hopefully my legacy is to build a, a retreat center, a writing retreat center. I do a lot of writing retreats at my house and just different places. And I just I want to have a place where I can have people come and it's on the water. So, yeah, I got some dreams, Jordan. I got some dreams. <laughs> you definitely have those. Uh, and on the topic of building up new writers, I'm also aware of another TV project that you have upcoming. I'm producing a TV show called America's Next Great Author. Six writers living in a house for 30 days and they have to finish a novel, 50,000 words. And the way we choose the six writers is we go around the country and we hold American Idol-style auditions. And people come to these auditions and they get 60 seconds to pitch their book to a panel of judges. So we're, we're in sort of development stage now. And the goal is to shoot it the season, season one next year. We shot a proof of concept where... Um, we have four pretty amazing judges, David Sterry, Jason Reynolds, Marga, and uh, Victoria Christopher Mary. And it was amazing. We had 800 writers audition, and we chose 75 finalists who all flew to Newark for the American Idol style audition, and it was pretty phenomenal. So, so working on that, developing that. That's cool. It's going to be a lot of fun. Talk about celebrating authors and, you know, elevating and celebrating right. authors. That's, that's amazing. Well, I like that. Celebrating and elevating. I like that. And as a fellow podcaster, I would be remiss if I didn't let Kwame plug his own upcoming podcast based on his memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. September 24th is my dad's birthday. He'll be 82. And uh, so launching a podcast called Why Fathers Cry. And uh, every Sunday, each week, I interview, have a conversation with a different father. As a small stop on his quest to inspire the next generation of writers, Kwame's reading and writing challenge, Blackout, is all about using your own creativity. Your favorite book, one page, photocopy it, black out some of the words, leave only the words that you want, that will then create a poem when you read them. 
It's a blackout poem. You can find more details about Kwame's reading challenge and all past reading challenges from authors such as Jacqueline Woodson, Meg Medina, and John Klassen at thereadingculturepod.com. This episode's Beanstack featured librarian is Kirsten Weaver, the programming specialist for the Indianapolis Public Library. She had some heartwarming stories to share about a book club she runs for teens at a residential treatment facility. I do a book club at a residential treatment facility where the kids are all court mandated there. Some of them are good readers. Some of them aren't the best readers. And that's okay. We read out loud and we read together and we discuss as we go. One of my favorite stories is one of our kids was struggling. And I opened my mouth to say, it's okay. Take your time. It's going to be good. And before I could say it, one of the other kids did. They said, slow down. Take your time. We'll wait. And the rest of the kids in the class echoed it and said, yeah, we're not going anywhere. They were so supportive of the other kid. That was awesome. I also love the fact that this book club that I do, we actually get to give the kids the books they get to keep them after. And a lot of these kids have never owned a book before in their life. Like when I tell them that they can keep the books at the beginning of the year that we read when we finish them, they're shocked because nobody's ever given them books to keep. And they not only keep them, but like when they get passes home, They'll take them home and give them to siblings or parents to read so that when they go home the next time, they can talk about the books. And they go back and the kids who aren't part of the book club, they will share the books with those kids so that they can then talk to them about it. And, you know, I love the fact that, you know, we're instilling this love of reading so much that they're encouraging them and without even asking them to, to spread it. And they are sharing that love of reading that they're developing. This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with Kwame Alexander. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading Crook Manifesto by Colston Whitehead and A First Time for Everything by Dan Santat. If you enjoy today's show, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and it really helps us. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and bonus content. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Oh, you're still here? Well, in this episode, we have a bit of an after show. Here's a question I asked Kwame earlier in the interview, but it seemed a little risque to include up front. Listen at your own risk. I'm wondering also what your love life was like in middle and high school. Because, okay, first of all, read having, because here's why, (laughs) because all your books, there's always a little, you know, side or central story (laughs) that is, you know, it's very important. And I found it like very interesting to read Why Fathers Cry at Night and then go back and reread. I'd already read, because I would oftentimes read a lot of books with uh, with Cassius, you know? And to go back and reread, I'm like, oh, he was working some stuff out here now that I'm coming back, (laughs) if I'm psychoanalyzing you. But for real, I did did wonder, did you have, you know, girlfriends and stuff like that? Because it's really, it feels very uh, authentic. I had desire. I had longing. I mean, I was a romantic kid. So when I was eight or nine or 10, there was a girl in New York. I 
took a liking to her. And one day I remember just waking up and just staring at the ceiling at 10 years old and just saying, I'm in love. I'm in love. <laughs> George, I remember, I remember just debating, how am I going to, how are you going to, you know, let her know? And I remember calling my parents or going in my parents' room and saying, look, guys, I'm in love and uh, I need to go spend some time with this girl. So can I please go and stay over at her house? I don't think I said it like that, Jordan, but I do yeah. remember that that weekend or that night or something, I was at her house and I spent the night. And we were friends, of course, so I slept on the floor next to her bed. Mm. And I remember her saying, I don't even know if you, you might have to bleep this out at some point on the Reading Culture podcast, people. She said, uh, can you come and... <laughs> I can't even say it. It's so silly. What did she say? She said, can you? <laughs> she said, Kwame. I, I think I said, like, I like you. And she said, if you like me, come and suck my toes. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> like, you got to bleep that out. I did not. I did not expect right. you to say that. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, my. But, oh, God. But my point was. My yeah. point was. <laughs> Go on. She was a little fast. Like, I, was I like, mean, yeah, nine years old. I was like, I don't know if I can handle this. I, I may not be ready for love, for real love. But no, but I just had these experiences where I just liked people a lot. And, and when I liked them a lot, it just, it moved me. So I've, I've, I had a lot of interest and a lot of, um, a lot of crushes, not a whole lot of reciprocation, <laughs> which of course, you know, makes you long and desire even more. So I listened to a lot of love songs and read a lot of love poems to get, to get sort of tied me over. Yeah, you're a poet. You're a poet. <laughs> As I was, re- I read this out loud last night when I was like, I read this, um, The Door of No Return. Uh-huh. But I was rereading. I'm like, you know what? This poem called Ama. Mm. If you were a mango, I would peel you, yep. <laughs> peel you, yep. keep you for myself, then reveal you. I'm like, this, this is, this is hot stuff. I was reading. I said, Cassius, when you read this, what you know, what were you thinking? You know, I'm trying to get information from him, and I'm like, this is, this is the most beautiful thing ever. So, yeah, love is love, love has always been a thing um, for me, as you know, reading Why Fathers Cry at Night. Mm, yeah, just trying to figure out, reconcile, understand, do better. Yeah. Let's move a little into your, uh, <laughs> I kind of want to know if you sucked her toes. I have to Oh my ask. gosh, you can't ask me that. Like, it's, it's enough for me to say it. Now that I have to, like, answer it, I can't answer that. Move, question number two. Let's move on. <laughs> oh my God. Is this the first time you've had conversation about toes on the reading call? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. A hundred percent. All this is a first. Okay. Um <laughs> And I have to be, I've never come across it in the interviews I've listened to with you. So there we go. You're the only person I've ever told that about. So there you go. You heard it here. There you go. Curdy here first. Um, That'll make kids want to read. I don't know know um, what that says about your podcast, but there you go. (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all. Don't say I didn't warn you. That's it for real for this episode. We'll see you in two weeks and keep reading.